Chapter Seventeen of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Seventeen. Summer lay like a mandarin coat over the city. It was June. Warm, sun-awninged streets glistened with ornamental colors. Women in gaudy fabrics, men in violent hat-bands, straws, panamas, striped shirts, sun-parasols like huge discs of confetti, freshly painted red and green streetcars, pastel-tinted automobiles, all these tumbled like a swarm of sprightly incoherent adjectives along the foot of the buildings. The store windows, like deaf and dumb hawkers, grimaced at the crowds. Ice creams, silks, swimming suits, and sport paraphernalia. Jaunty frocks, white trousers, candies, festive haberdashery, drugs, leather goods, wicker furniture, and assortments of lingerie like the symbols of fastidious sins. All these grimaced behind plate glass. The city was in bloom. People, perspiring and lightly dressed, sauntered by the plate-glass orchards. Summer filled the city with reminiscent smells. Sky, water, grass scampered like merry ghosts through the carnival of the shopping center. Warm, sun-awninged streets, ornamental men and women. Summer spread itself through the crowds, warmed the bargain hunters, loiterers, clerks, stenographers, businessmen and housewives into a half-sleep. They peered lazily at each other. Their mysterious preoccupations seemed to have subsided. The sun made holiday in the streets, and the high, fluttering windows showered endlessly tiny suns on the air. The morning held the unreal soul of some forgotten picnic. Ten o'clock. Fanny Gilchrist turned with an inward sigh and walked out of the crowded business street. This was LaSalle Street, and concealed in the buildings around her were people who knew her and might see her, accidentally bump into her. The crowds grew thinner and less familiar types of faces drifted by. This was better. She wasn't exactly afraid. But what if someone did bump into her accidentally? Then she would have to say where she was going, and if she lied, perhaps they would insist upon coming along and discover it. But that was foolishness. No one ever met people in streets like that. Men looked at her with casual interest, with insignificant enthusiasm, as she walked by them. A bright-haired, shining-eyed young woman with a body undulating softly under a gray and green trimmed dress. She seemed to light up the dingy pavements. Other women passed lighting them up also. Each new female illuminant was welcomed with thankful, greedy eyes. Her red sailor jauntily tilted, and the silken gleam of her face were like part of a luscious mask. She was a woman hurrying somewhere, and men, bored with other women, looked at her enthusiastically. She was one of the many enigmatic ones, one of the many gaudy-colored masks behind which sex paraded its mystery through the sun-awninged streets. Eyes ennuied with the memory of sex lighted eagerly in the presence of its masks. The flash of ankles, 
and the swell of thighs under pretty fabrics were diversions even for moralists. Schroeder, waiting patiently on a street corner, watched the warm crowd. She wouldn't come. Yes, she would. Well, another five minutes would tell. He saw her, and his excitement changed. A leisurely smile came to his face. His body relaxed. He was a connoisseur in rendezvous, and his enjoyment of the moment which witnessed her approach was deliberate. Women in themselves did not interest him so much. Their bodies, pleasant, yes, but, after all, a finale. And one does not applaud finales. But now, watching her lithe figure hurrying toward him was a diversion to be sipped at, contemplated in all its emotional detail, and enjoyed. Later it would be this moment he remembered, if he remembered anything, which was uncertain. For his memories, which had in his younger days glistened in his thought like a mosaic of eroticism, had of late blurred to a monotone. He could remember women, liaisons, passion phrases, and great enthusiasms, but, curiously, they seemed all identical. To recall how one woman had sighed in his arms was to recall the whole pack of them as if the souls of his paramours and the manner of their surrenders were contained completely in the recollection of any one detail. But despite his ennui, this moment of approach still delighted him. The woman hurrying to his side was not yet a woman. She was still a mystery whose inevitable and never-varying sensualism was masked for a final instant behind unfamiliar fabrics. There was a piquant unreality, a diverting strangeness, as she smiled at him. She was somebody he did not know. He was authentically bored with women. But for the moment it was not a woman approaching, rather a new color of cloth, a new combination of dress, a new species of social poise and gesture were presenting themselves for ravishment. In these unfamiliar surfaces lay a tenuous mystery as if it were these externals he was about to embrace. And in the contemplation of this mystery, his interest revived itself. He sighed. It was a mystery which would vanish shortly. "'Hello, dearest!' He greeted her softly, with regret. A quixotic impulse to turn and walk away before she spoke had died in him. Fanny was staring expectantly. He was familiar with the expression, not in her, but in others. This took away its charms. Married women were nearly all alike, full of distressing shortcuts, with an irritating and incongruous professionalism behind their bewilderment. What dolts husbands must be to blunt women like that! As he took her hand and felt her fingers clutch excitedly around his palm, he remembered in an instant the predecessors of her type, full of distressing shortcuts. When they gave their hands, they withheld nothing. They denuded themselves with a look, with a handclasp, and the subtlety of skirmishing seemed entirely foreign to them. When they embraced, it was with an appalling directness. Yes, in intrigue they were all alike, all like precocious children, 
vague, bewildered children mimicking the precisions of their elders and exclaiming with distrustful incongruity, "'Tut, tut, let's come to the point. Let's get down to brass tacks and stop beating around the bush.' Well, here she was, and the scene was on. "'Am I late?' "'No, dearest. I was just a little early so as to enjoy the impatience of waiting for you.' The nuance was lost upon her. Amorous women were a cold audience for technique. "'I'm so upset. Do you mind?' "'Not at all, Fanny. Of course you're upset. But it only adds to your charm.' He had long ago abandoned love-making tactics sensing that women who came to him were not particularly interested in tender pretenses. They desired flattery, but direct and practical variants. This one was like the others, flushed, eager, frightened, and gay. He felt an exhilaration as they walked towards the entrance of the unpretentious hotel around the corner. A sense of conquest. It was nothing to be enjoyed in itself. But if people knew, which they never could, alas, they would be awed by the ease with which he accomplished such things. One, two, three meetings, and here they were again. Paul Schroeder entering a hotel with a woman at his side. "'This isn't a bad place,' he whispered. "'I've already registered. Mr. and Mrs. Paul Johnson. It's better if you know your name, of course.' Fanny stood tremblingly in front of the elevator cage as he walked to the desk. She noticed his carelessness, the unselfconscious way in which he smiled at the clerk and paused to buy some cigars. The fear that had grown in her since she left her home appeared to be reaching a climax. Her knees shivered under her dress, and a catch in her throat made breathing difficult. "'There's nothing to be afraid of.' she repeated silently to herself, and tried to understand the cause of her trembling. Even if there were consequences, there was Aubrey. She smiled nervously. It was his fault. He was a fool. They entered the elevator. A sleepy boy shut the cage door after them. Schroeder gripped her arm, and his fingers caressed the soft flesh. She turned to him and smiled. She was no longer afraid. A shameless, exultant light kindled in her eyes. She leaned against him with a shiver as the elevator lifted slowly. They had decided to check out in time for her to return home for dinner. "'I don't have to go up to the desk with you, do I?' she asked. Schroeder smiled tiredly. "'Oh, no,' he said. You wait at the entrance with the property suitcase. Then we'll both take a cab and drive a few blocks. I'll get out with the bag and you drive on home. It's simple. Nevertheless, the fear she had experienced in the morning returned as she watched him go to the desk. In another minute it would be all over and everything would be all right. But now, what if someone saw them, bumped into her accidentally? The lassitude which had filled her when she locked the tumbled hotel room behind her gave way to a curious panic. Her tired nerves became unhappily alive. "'Why, hello, Mrs. Gilchrist. 
She was unable to see the man for an instant. Her mind had darkened. "'I mustn't faint,' she murmured to herself. She was looking at an unshaven, dissipated face that smiled. As she looked, her world seemed to be falling down. Everything gone, ruined, because a face was smiling. Tom Ramsey. The man's name popped into her thought. "'Hello,' she muttered. Schroeder approached and frowned. He took her arm and led her away. She began to cry in the cab. "'He saw us. He knows. He'll tell everybody. Oh, my God! Why did you come up when you saw him? If you'd only realized. Oh, why did I do it? Now everything's ruined. I'm lost.' She wept, knowing the futility of tears. An accident that seemed provokingly unreal and soothingly unimportant. Tom Ramsey. Yet the name was like a guillotine block on which her head lay stretched. Schroeder, annoyed, tried to console her. Who was it? Listen, pull yourself together. People always imagine themselves guiltier looking than they are. He probably thought nothing wrong. Tom Ramsey. Didn't you see how he looked at me? Oh, God, I'm sick. Who is he? He used to be my mother's friend. But he went to the dogs. He's just a tramp now. He isn't a gentleman. Schroeder sighed. Oh, well, he said. There's no use worrying. Come, put it out of your head. I can't. Oh, I can't. Why did I do it? I'll kill myself if, if anything happens. Aubrey will, oh, Paul, I feel sick. He stared glumly at the back of the chauffeur's head. A nuisance, a damned nuisance. His mind played with contrasts. A few hours ago she had been shameless. Now she sat weeping. He thought of her as ungrateful and grew angry. I'll step out now, he whispered. Call me up tomorrow at the office, will you? Nothing will happen. Please be calm. It's all imagination. He halted the cab and stepped out with the suitcase. She would feel better, he knew, as soon as he disappeared. She would be able to convince herself then that nothing had happened, that she was coming home from a shopping tour. Goodbye. Call me up, dearest. Fanny sat weeping as the cab moved away. Ramsey had seen her. A misery too heavy for thought brought another burst of tears. She hated Schroeder. And herself, too. But most of all, the ragged-looking, unshaven Ramsey in the lobby. Why had he come at just that moment? If they had left the room ten minutes earlier, it was Paul's fault. He insisted on combing his hair and reading a story in the newspaper. If he hadn't sent down for the newspaper in the middle of the afternoon. He didn't love her, or he wouldn't have thought of sending for it. She had laughed at the time, but it was an insult. He was a brute. If he had loved her, he wouldn't have wanted to read a newspaper, and they wouldn't have met Ramsey. 
she sat conjuring up dozens of trifling incidents which, had they occurred, would have prevented the fatal meeting with Ramsay. Then she smiled convulsively through her tears. It was about the story. They had laughed at it in the room. Judge Bazine launches vice quiz. State to investigate problem of immorality among women wage earners. Why girls go wrong, why girls go wrong, rumbled through her head now, and she laughed hysterically. Oh, that tramp of a Ramsey had spoiled it all. Otherwise it would have been wonderful. And next week, too. But perhaps he hadn't noticed anything. Of course he hadn't. Paul was right. She dried her tears and looked into the twilighted streets. She had planned her homecoming days ago. She would be ill, overcome by the heat, and excuse herself from the dinner table. A final chill shot through her heart as the cab stopped. She found herself entering her home with complete poise. It was almost as if nothing had happened. Here were the familiar things of life. Her home, Aubrey, the rows of books, the walnut library table. Nothing had happened. For a moment she was amazed at the complete unconsciousness of the day. Then, smiling delightedly at her husband in a chair, a familiar husband in a familiar chair, she removed her hat and approached him. Leaning over the back of his chair, she kissed him tenderly on the cheek. He was her protector. Good old Aubrey, so familiar, so placid and unchanged. If it only hadn't been for Ramsey, everything would be so nice now. But anyway, it wasn't so bad. She had been a bit hysterical. Where have you been, Fanny? She felt no twinge at the question. Instead, an enthusiasm for the situation filled her. To the matinee, she laughed. Oh, I saw the nicest show. She leaned forward and took his hand. Aubrey regarded her with a petulant stare. Despite their years of marriage, she was still an animal, gross and irritating. And I'm just starved, she exclaimed. I was never so hungry in my life. She laughed, overjoyed at the truth of the statement, and hurried upstairs to prepare for dinner. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Moline